0: Be reading God's word this morning from Matthew chapter twenty-five, beginning in verse thirty-one. As we continue our study of this momentous and climactic teaching at the close of what we refer to as the Olivet discourse, it is the last significant um, body of Christ's teaching before uh, He has um, comes to the time when He is betrayed and is handed over it is an amazing portion of scripture that we've been paying attention to now for several weeks and we come this morning finally to as it were to examine the contents we've looked at what is meant by Christ's glorious throne we looked at some of the background of the promises about the coming messiah the son of man last lord's day morning we examined the difficult doctrine of hell a difficult but important and part of the glory of God, um, as sobering as that subject is. But now we come to verses 31 through 46. I'm going to read the text, I'm going to pray, and then this morning, I hope that God will help us to understand this passage that I, I fear is so misunderstood, misapplied. And so let's give attention now to God's word. Jesus said. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. From the foundation of the world, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, and to the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger, or naked or sick or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them. Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Amen. We need help to understand what the Lord is telling us. Let's pray. Oh God, we come to you as those who will either spend eternity in your presence, the new heaven and new earth, or eternity in the eternal fire. We want to be on the right side. We want to be those that you call your brethren, the righteous. We pray that you would help us this morning to understand our Lord's words. And we pray that the consequence, the results would be love for Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46 are unique this story this account this prophecy this teaching by Jesus occurs only here in the gospels to this degree to this with this detail and this morning i have come to the conviction that this is perhaps one of the most misunderstood and misapplied portions of jesus's words in the whole gospel of matthew if to some extent in the New Testament. The emphasis that we often think of and we our minds are directed to and is reinforced by various books that have been written, whole ministries of benevolence and ministry to the poor, is it focuses on what Jesus has to say about the sick and the, those in prison and so forth. And it is absolutely true in the New Testament that believers in Jesus Christ those who are followers of Christ, are to care for the poor. We are certainly to look out for the needs, especially those of the household of God. James tells us that true religion, if it's true, includes the visiting of orphans and widows. Absolutely, those who are followers of Jesus Christ are to be concerned with the needs of others around us. But that is not That is not the emphasis or the predominant teaching of this text. It's understandable in a way that we would fixate on that. We even see what Jesus says and questions are raised. Well, if this is true, then is it true that we are actually saved by faith? Or, as a surface reading might indicate, is it true that we are ultimately saved and we enter into heaven and escape hell on based on good deeds especially in particular our attitude and our actions towards those who are poor or sick or in prison is jesus teaching salvation by works by benevolence these are some of the questions we have and and most of my life the songs i've heard in in christian circles The teaching, the books, emphasizes and narrows in on what Jesus says about our care for those who are sick, who are poor. And immediately the application goes to, well, that's what we should be doing. And again, in the New Testament, there are other places, even in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus teaches that his people are to have an eye to those who are poor and those who are sick and those who are needy and those who are in prison But I cannot say it strongly enough. If we get that from this text, we have missed the forest for the pine cone. And I now have quite a job, having stated that so strongly, to help you see from scriptures just what it is that the Holy Spirit, in recording Christ's words, intended, I believe, in this portion of his holy word. Our job when we study the Bible is to pay attention to the words, but then the way that we understand the Bible is we consider the context. We consider what is immediately around those words. And then particularly as we come to the Olivet Discourse, what Jesus has been saying to his disciples here on the Mount of Olives shortly before he's about to be betrayed, crucified, he's been talking to them about the last things. The whole section begins in chapter 24, verse 3, when his disciples ask Jesus and come to him privately and say, tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. This is the concern of this entire passage. This is what Jesus is addressing and again, as I've said numerous times, Jesus does not rebuke their question. He does not suggest that it's off, out of place. It does off the mark. Far from it. He looks into the eyes of these men whom he loves, who have suffered with him and who are going to suffer. And most of them going to be martyred on account of his name. And he looks them in the eye and he tells them he answers their question and as we've seen not only does he answer their question but he draws from all of what the scriptures had already revealed in the prophets. He, he, he simply affirms and reaffirms and expands upon what God had already revealed especially through the prophet Daniel. The prophet Daniel and God's revelations to Daniel dominate Jesus's words to his disciples. And so the immediate context is about the last things, about the sign of Christ's coming, about the end of the age. And remember, when the disciples are sitting there, these are Jewish men. These are men who are steeped in the scriptures of the prophets. They've put their whole lives on the line Left their businesses, risked their lives because they believe what the prophets of old said was true, and they believe that the king is Christ and that all of the promises will come to pass. That's the context, that's the setting. And Jesus is telling them that he's going to be handed over to the chief priest, betrayed, he's going to be crucified. He's told them numerous times, they're confused. They see how Jesus is being treated by the leaders and how he's been rejected by his own people. They believe he's the king. They believe he's the Messiah. But this is not going the way that they planned. They are understandably concerned about the fulfillment of the coming of the kingdom. And Jesus does nothing to discourage their hopes or their interests, but in love and in kindness, affirms that what the prophets said was true, and Jesus only increases their expectation of the glory of his coming. We saw this in chapter 25, verse 31, a few Sundays ago, when we considered together the glorious throne, verse 31, of the Son of Man. The Son of Man, this title for the Messiah, From the prophecies given to Daniel, the glorious throne, the throne of his father David, all of the promises to David and were restated by God throughout the centuries. Jesus Christ will come and sit on the glorious throne given to him by his father as the descendant of David. He will sit in Jerusalem and then the remainder of the passage affirms a dominant teaching of the Old Testament scriptures. There is a major theme of the Old Testament scriptures that is left hanging. And if you read your Old Testament, it's there. It's it's there constantly, especially in the prophets. You can't read one of the prophets without coming across these major themes. Let me just kind of give you some words, words like nations. Did you notice in chapter 25, verse 32, that Jesus said all the nations will be gathered to him? Do you see how when we fixate on what Jesus says about the sick in prison, and it is an individual judgment, but in so many treatments of this passage, We just flip over what Jesus says in verse 32 about the nations. All the nations will be gathered before him. The nations will be gathered. What God does with the nations is a major theme in the scriptures. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. Another major theme of the Old Testament that we'll see as we look at the Old Testament scriptures is the treatment of God's people. Those associated with God and with Christ. We know that Israel, Judah, was one of the nations that was in opposition to God and to his people. We know that they were in rebellion, but we know that God's, the other nations of the world also, also threatened Israel and Judah and that they were subject to poor treatment and to this day. Jews are associated with God. It's non-accidental. There's anti-Semitism to this day, this Friday, this Friday, this coming Friday it will be Holocaust Remembrance Day. When six million Jews were systematically, intentionally murdered by governments in Europe, particularly the, under the influence of the Nazis. And then we know that the persecution of Christians. So these themes of of God's dealing with the nations that are in rebellion against him. What about all of the untold sufferings of people who were Jews, who loved God, that small remnant who believed his promises, men like the disciples? What about persecuted Christians throughout the ages? What is the judgment that's coming? Is there going to be any day of reckoning? So in the remainder of our time this morning, we're going to be looking at a lot of Old Testament scriptures, and my hope is that by the time we're done, we're going to read again Matthew chapter 25, and you're just going to read it, oh, 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 that's what Jesus is saying. First of all, I want to look with you for just a few moments of this theme of the nations, because it's... It's important. Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 32, at this judgment in the last days, when Jesus, the Son of Man, returns in his glory, all the nations will be gathered before him. This is not merely a term saying all kinds of people. The nations, it comprised of individuals, yes, but we understand to this day, There are realities, there are political entities called nations, nations comprised of individuals, nations to this day in rebellion against God, nations to this day united in hostility against those associated with God and with Christ. Did you know that God is the creator of nations? Did you know that? It's not a creation of fallen mankind. In Genesis chapter 10, and you can try to turn this morning. I'm going to move quickly, so there's sections. I'll try to tell you when there's a passage that you really should turn to and we can look at together. But you can write down some of these references. After the flood in the days of Noah, when Noah and his family stepped out from the ark and God entered into covenant with Noah. In Genesis chapter 10, verse 32, we learn these are the families of the sons of Noah. According to their genealogies by their nations. And out of these the nations were separated on earth after the flood. There's no indication there that this was wrong, that this was bad. God has a intent, an intent, and a plan for the nations. In fact, through Abraham in Genesis 18, when God was about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord said in Genesis 18, verse 17, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God intended for Abraham, his descendants, his physical descendants, those who are Jews would also become Israel and Judah to become a mighty nation. And through that nation, Israel all nations of the earth would be blessed. Scott, could you turn off the heater? Is it getting a little warm in here or is it just me? Maybe it's just me, but I don't want you falling asleep. You've got to stay awake. And uh, thank you. Um, we're very thankful that God has provided that we do have heat, even while we're waiting, waiting for our, our system to be installed eventually. Thank you very much. So Abraham would become a mighty nation, and through him, all nations of the earth would be blessed. That's not a a side story to the Bible. It's dominant. God had Isaac declare a blessing upon Jacob in Genesis chapter 27. Jacob, who is a deceiver, right? Remember Jacob and Esau? Remember Jacob stole the blessing? And of course, that was in God's plan ultimately. But in the blessing upon Jacob, who would become Israel, Isaac said, May people serve you. He's talking to Israel, to Jacob, and nations bow down to you. Nations bow down to you. Now, we read our Bibles, there's details, and we think, we tend to think God's like us. We tend to think that God says things that. He makes specific things. Oh, yes, I'll do that. Oh, yes, that person. Oh, yes. And we tend to think God is like us. He says something in this big book and then he kind of moves on and forgets. No. Mark it. Every single exact promise he has ever made will be fulfilled down to the most minute detail. So here we are we're at the very beginning of the Bible we have the creation of nations we have the teaching that God intended for nations to be part of the revelation of his glory that God would raise up one nation Israel as a means of ultimately blessing to all the nations but the nations would bow down to Israel ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ. God's dealings with the nations is a dominant theme of Scripture. It's not peripheral. It's not incidental. But to this day, the nations, including the descendants of Abraham, are in rebellion against God. This is Psalm 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Answer, because they hate God. And the God of this world, small g, Satan, is continually influencing the nations. He's trying to undermine God's glory at the individual level in each man or woman made in the image of God and at the national level. This is why there is no hope ultimately for any nation until Christ comes and is king over all the earth. The nations are in an uproar. Mankind's in rebellion at the individual and national level. And nations may fight against one another, and we know that they do. They always have, they are now, and they always will until Christ comes. But the story of history is the story of nations raised up in their pride against the knowledge of God and of Christ. In Daniel chapter 7, if you want to turn there with me for a moment, Daniel chapter 7, we've learned this prophecy, this revelation to Daniel is, looms large in Jesus' mind as he's talking to his disciples. Jesus is the Son of Man who's revealed to Daniel in glory, who comes up to the Ancient of Days. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, there Daniel keeps looking in the night visions. And behold, the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man, came up to the ancient of days, was presented before him. To this son of man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. And I said that that's not, that placement is not accidental because before this, maybe you remember, we don't have much time, but you remember the book of Daniel opens up with uh, the king has a dream of a statue, and the statue has gold and clay and iron in different sections. And God reveals to Daniel, through Daniel, to the king, that God has in this statue given a picture of the various dominant empires that will rise up in opposition to God and God's people. Roman Empire, the Babylonians, the the Greek, Persians. In other words, history is unfolding. The nations are, and the dominant empires are rising up against God and rising and falling according to the plan of God. These are wicked nations. These are evil nations. And they do not ultimately fear God and help his people. They ultimately reject God and turn on his people. Is that happening possibly anywhere near you in these days? So a dominant theme is the nations. It's closely related to that is the persecution by these nations and evil men and women in these nations of the few, humble, righteous, God-fearing men and women, whether they're Jew or Gentile. Did you notice, back to Matthew chapter 25, that when Jesus separates the sheep and the goats and he judges on the basis of the treatment of certain individuals we often fixate on the, what he says of the least of them, and we automatically infer that's got to be a certain class of people in society, and we miss what Jesus said, one of my brothers. One of my brothers, verse 40, for example, the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine. That, that is specific terminology, That is not broad stroke for anyone who's down on their luck. I do not mean to be unkind. This is not about benevolence unless what you mean in particular is how we treat those who confess God in Christ when they are hunted and when they are persecuted. You'll see this theme. It's a major theme in the scriptures. For example, Daniel chapter 7, you, you, I keep, you can just keep your finger in Daniel for a little while here. Daniel chapter 7, after he sees the vision, Daniel sees the vision of the glorious Son of Man in the Ancient of Days. In chapter 7, verse 21, he says, I kept looking and that horn was raging, horn, war, a horn, that's kind of weird, a horn symbolizing power, and if you've grown up around animals with horns, you have no problem with this. You get it, especially if it's a big animal with a horn. Uh, you, you watch yourself around that animal. You're careful around that animal, and in, you know that if the animal's big enough and the horns are sharp enough, uh, what those horns can do to you. So horns symbolizing power, dominion, and they are symbolizing these kings or these Antichrist, these nations and their leaders who are in opposition to God and his people. And this horn, this Antichrist figure, verse 21, was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. In verse 25, again, we learn that this evil Antichrist figure, this leader of the final nation in opposition against God, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints. So we've been Daniel's been told that there's an unfolding of a succession of godless kingdoms and nations in rebellion against God and they will not only lift themselves up but one of their because they are inspired ultimately by Satan and because they hate God they hate those who are associated with God. So it's not surprising that wherever you see a godless nation you do not see love and support for those who identify with God. In fact, you increasingly see persecution, as you do in China, as you do see in many Islamic nations, and as you see increasingly in the West, where to even hold to a biblical Christian morality is increasingly to be considered a bigot. You can be fired from your job, and we do not expect it will be long before we will be in prison for such things. It's not outlandish. And Jesus had said, back to the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 9. Again, this is the context. In chapter 24, verse 9, he had said that the disciples, that they will be delivered over. By who? Verse 7, nation will rise against nation. And, verse 9, they will deliver you, disciples, over to tribulation, will kill you. You'll be hated by all nations because of my name. Picking up on the emphasis, on the major characters, major themes. Matthew chapter 24, verse 22. So great in the last days will that tribulation period, will there be persecution of of Christ believing men and women whether Jew or Gentile that verse 22 unless those days had been cut short no life would have been saved but for the sake of the elect those days will be cut short why because they are being annihilated they are being persecuted they are being hunted they are being left and and God is out to spare them in the end. The nations and their leaders under the influence of Satan ultimately direct their hatred against God in this world by directing their hatred against those people associated with God in Christ. This is the explanation for anti-Semitism. It makes no sense otherwise. Why? Now, am I saying that every Jew is saved and enters, no, no, listen very, all I said was because they are Jewish and physical descendants of the seed of Abraham, of Abraham, they have an association with God. Christ himself is a resurrected Jewish man, get that, glorified, son of God, son of man. Satan hates him hates his people, that is the only explanation for the intensity, for the consistency, and for the unending nature of anti-Semitism that we see in this world. It's the explanation for anti-Semitism, and it's the explanation for the persecution of Christians. Throughout history, and in many places in the world today, whether by physical or by spiritual association, doesn't matter. If you're associated with God, with Christ, or his ways, this world hates you. And so persecution and maltreatment is so is overwhelming at times. So much so that throughout history and especially in the last days in the tribulation before the return of Christ. To provide even any form of aid to those associated with God and with Christ. To even provide aid and help or to even associate with a person that is a Christian be like a death sentence. This is the context of, you did not, I was in prison, you did not visit me. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'm not trying to get weird. How many of us are being tracked this morning? Very few of you in this room. Am I saying that somebody's watching out where you are? No, but the reality is everybody who has a computer and smarts could know where you are. In China today, part of the persecution against believers in that surveillance state, and this is not the stuff of science fiction, this is real. If you're a faithful Christian that preaches the gospel, preaches the word, don't you think that they can track where you go and your job Your access to your funds and so forth can be limited on the basis of who you even are found. The little circle on the map, if the little circle on your map is found in a place like this, you're on a list and it's going to cost you. We need to be preparing for this. This is happening. Are you willing in your place to risk your job? And some of you, this is this is not theoretical. This is here and this is now. Are you willing to risk your job by standing up for biblical principles, not in an obnoxious way, but simply insisting that men are men and women are women and boys and boys and girls are girls. That alone, in some places, especially in the medical field. Those of you who are in the medical field, do you understand what I'm saying? This cost you your job. Maybe you're a person who's in supervision. Are you willing to stand up for that person who's on your staff who will not, because of their love for Christ, bow and hold to their conscience? Are you willing to associate with them? Are you content to just kind of stay quiet? They Somehow their post on the Internet about Christ or about this issue of men and women was found, but you haven't been found out yet. Are you willing to associate with them? Do you See what I'm getting at? Jesus identifies with his brethren. It's a major theme of scripture because to follow Christ and to follow him and to love God in his ways so often in this world for now and has in history past meant that you are seemingly forgotten, that you are neglected, that you are unknown. You do not receive justice. You are maligned. You are slandered. You are persecuted. You pay and it seems that justice goes undone. To even associate, to, to be a follower of Christ, to be a God-fearing man or woman is to receive persecution, but even to provide aid. We have examples of this. For example, uh, don't turn there, but First Kings chapter 18. Those of us, you've been working through me in the evening service through First and Second Kings. You might remember the servant of Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel's not good, (laughs) bad. Um, She's like Hitler. She wants to slaughter and literally exterminate every single person who professes faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel. And Ahab is her unwitting, evil husband. Jezebel was on an extermination program, and God raised up Obadiah, who was a servant of Ahab, a commander of armies, and when Ahab and Jezebel were hunting down Elijah, Obadiah came to Elijah, and what Ahab and Jezebel didn't know is that Obadiah, one of the commanders of their army, was actually a God-fearing man, and he'd actually hidden true prophets in a cave. He says in 1 Kings 18, verse 13, To Elijah, Has it not been told, my master, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? That I hid a hundred prophets of the Lord by fifties in a cave, and I provided them with bread and water? He's not boasting. (laughs) He's just saying to Elijah, Elijah, you want me to go and tell Ahab and Jezebel where you are? And then you're going to leave my life? I'll be a dead man. And he's just saying, hey, Elijah, I know I look like I'm with the bad guys, but I've actually been feeding and clothing and providing food for the faithful prophets of God in a cave. Daniel himself was a picture of what Jesus is talking about, a godly man in his generation who was thrown into a prison with lions. That's what the pit was. It was a prison. And he was left there to die until the king came in the morning and and brought him out. Or what about Paul in New Testament times? Listen to what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He says to Timothy, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. All who are in Asia turned away from me. He's in prison in Rome. Why did they turn away from him? Because this time around, they had an idea that Rome was serious and that the emperor had no patience for a character like Paul. And so that even to go to the place of arrest to provide Paul with food and with water, the government doesn't do that. You're a prisoner, you're dependent upon other people bringing supplies to you. He says, they've all turned away from me, except, for example, of Onesiphorus, he says the Lord give mercy to the house of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains but when he was in Rome he eagerly searched for me and found him the Lord grant to find him mercy him to find mercy from the Lord on that day What's that day It's this day the day of judgment But that's an example. Paul was abandoned. Paul was often sick and in prison. And sometimes he was not visited. Anesiphorus visited him. And so turn with me now to the Psalms. I want to begin looking. What I've tried to do is just try to orient you thus far to a few major themes. And I trust you can see if you read the Olivet Discourse, we're not loading these themes in like they're foreign. This is the this is what the disciples are asking about. When are the nations going to be dealt with? Jesus, they've seen how Jesus has been treated poorly. Jesus is about to be falsely betrayed to get a sham of a trial. When is there going to be a reckoning for that kind of thing? When is the judge going to sit on his glorious throne? This... Was in their hearts needs to be in ours as well. Because in reality, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be a God-fearing man or woman, is to be like one who's like a sheep led to the slaughter. Psalm 44, verse 22. I told you to turn to the Psalms, but I didn't tell you what reference. Interesting that in Romans 8, that great passage where Neither life nor death, nor powers nor principalities. That, that wonderful passage we all love. Paul quotes from Psalm 44, verse 22. But for your sake, O God, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. That is the common experience of God's people, the few, the humble, the contrite in each generation, whether Jewish or Gentile and that will only increase the experience in the days of the tribulation those few who come to faith in Christ those few that remnant of Jews who are understand finally that Christ is their messiah those believing gentiles in the days of tribulation will be like sheep for slaughter like mutton such will be the slaughter And they ask, arouse yourself, verse 23. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? It seems like God is. And you have to acknowledge that many, countless of those who profess faith in God and Christ, this has been their experience. It seemed like even their lives ended in forgottenness and injustice. Psalm forty seven seventy-nine rather. Psalm seventy-nine. Similar theme. And I'm only hitting some highlights. I mean, I invite you. Just read through the Psalms. I mean, just glance through, look for the theme of the nations and their oppression of godly and the cry for justice. This is not a minor theme. Help us, O God. Psalm 79, verse 9. O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, deliver us, atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let it be known among the nations before our eyes, vengeance for the blood of your slaves, which has been poured out. I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Version here in my notes. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you, Wow. Verse 13, but as for us, as your people and the sheep of your pasture, we will give thanks to you forever. So when is God going to judge the nations? It's a major question because it's a major theme. When is God going to vindicate his people? Psalm, let's go back to Psalm 9. Spend a few moments in the Psalms and then we'll move on to the prophets. Psalm 9, verse 19. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Has that happened yet? I'm not aware of it. I'm not aware of when the nations have been judged and have been put in their place. I don't think it's happened yet. What about Psalm 96, verse 10? Psalm 96, verse 10, part of a call to worship. Why why do we worship God? In part, because of what he's going to do in the future in relation to wicked nations. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Has that happened yet? There is a, uh, we understand, some of you have seen articles some of the very last men and women being brought to court in Germany and other places uh, where, where the, the international courts who participated in Nazi in prisoner camps. And it's, it's likely that we've probably seen some of the last ones who can be brought to justice. They, after the war, they fled, they hid, They were guilty of unspeakable evil, of participating in the slaughter of men, women, boys, and girls and their abuse in unspeakable ways. And after the war, they just slipped away, and it seems like they escaped justice. And there has been, since the close of World War II, an an heroic effort to try and find those who participated in those atrocities, But time has run out because now those individuals are 100 years old or more, and most of them have simply died. And it would seem that justice, the opportunity for justice, has been missed. Has it? Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, most frequently referenced Jesus loved this psalm. He knew it spoke of him. We're not going to read the whole psalm, but it's a messianic psalm. Verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. But look down at verse 6. He will judge among the nations. He will judge among the nations. That has to happen. The Messiah has to have a reckoning with the nations. He has to, in the language of Psalm 2, rule them with a rod of iron, a day of judgment. This is a cry of the, of the prophets. If you want to, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 2 with me. Again, this messianic Prophecy Isaiah Chapter two, verse four. And he who Christ, the King. He will judge between the nations and render decisions for many peoples. It's got to happen. Nations will no longer lift up sword against sword. Isaiah 16 verse 5. A throne will even be established in loving kindness, and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and will be prompt in righteousness. Interesting in Matthew chapter 25, when the Son of Man comes, then will he sit on his glorious throne and the nations will be gathered. You don't have this long, drawn-out system where something has to work through the court's. We all understand that process in these days. What seems to us as average layman could be a very simple process. This, is, this person did something terrible. I mean, what's, how is this complicated? He should be arrested, should go. You know, it's not like that, is, is it? A month, years, decades sometimes. Not in Matthew chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered. This is not a long process. He will be prompt in righteousness and in justice. Isaiah 42, verse 1. God says, behold my servant. That's a messianic title in Isaiah. And this would be common in that day and age, in the period of the Babylonians and the Persian Empire. For the chief and foremost servant of the king to be, have the authority of the king, essentially, and to be honored. God says, my servant, this is the Christ, the Messiah, whom I uphold, my chosen one and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Justice to the nations. We have only touched on a few references. Oh, you see this throughout the prophets. I don't, you don't have time to turn there. Let me just read a few more references, just a few highlights. For example, in Obadiah, verse 15, the day of Yahweh draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Malachi 3, verse 5, then I, God says, I will draw near to you for judgment I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and adulterers, those who swear falsely and oppress the wage earner for his wages, the widow and the oppress the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the sojourner and do not fear me. I was naked; you did not clothe me. Jesus is just drawing upon all of this rich Old Testament prophecy. Joel 3 verse 12, let the nations be roused and up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, says God, for there I will sit to judge the surrounding nations. When the Son of Man comes, then will he sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered. This is not new revelation that Jesus is sharing in Matthew chapter 25. And why will they be judged? Why will the nations be judged? They will be judged on a national level. And ultimately, we see in Matthew chapter 25, it is individuals who either are commended or cast into the lake of fire. Individuals, though, are part of a nation. And from our vantage point, it would seem that it's impossible for justice to be measured out at that kind of level. Nations are so complex, full of so many millions, even billions of people, so many different characters, so many uh, complicating factors and influences and circumstances. Who could possibly ever unravel all of this so that you have on a national level an assembly and that there's somebody who can actually dismantle this whole framework and work it down to the end individual level and assign to every single individual justice according to the evil that he or she did answer who can do that jesus and he's gonna he's going to and why 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 i want you to see just if we have a few minutes left You have this nations and the gathering, the judgment, and God is going to, through Christ, judge the wicked. For example, in Isaiah, maybe some of you are in Isaiah still, so turn with me to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, if you want, or you can just listen. One of the things in Isaiah's day that happened and would happen is that Even though Israel and Judah were oppressed by surrounding nations, you know that Judah, within Judah, there were actually very few humble, contrite believers. There was only a remnant, and they were oppressed by their fellow Israelites. And the leaders of Judah and Israel, the kings, by and large, abused the people. And they thought that God would never see it. And justice, though, is coming. Isaiah 65, verse 13. God says, thus says the Lord, behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. Who? These evil men and women who, when their fellow Israelites or Judeans were under duress or mocked because of their fear of love of God, and they were left to starve and be thirsty, God in the last day says, My servants will eat, but you will be hungry. My servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. My servants will reach out joyfully with a glad heart, but you will cry out with a heavy heart. Is that not a description of Matthew 25? That those who were the outcasts because of their faith, because of their love for God, who are persecuted, even slaughtered, will find that they are vindicated and that those who were evil and neglected and abused will be exposed. Lord, when did we visit you? Shock, joy. For those who are righteous, for those who Turn the other way. When Christ's brethren were being persecuted, hunted, and slaughtered, there'll be a reckoning. Turn with me to Ezekiel 34. This is a key background passage for Matthew chapter 25. Ezekiel chapter 34. We'll spend a few moments here. In Ezekiel 34, God brings to task the leaders of Israel. And by this time, they're well on their way to exile, in exile. And in Ezekiel 34, verse 3, God says to the abusive wicked among the people of God, you eat the fat and clothe yourselves with Wool, You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock, He's especially rebuking the leaders. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. Sound, hear any echoes there? The broken, diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and severity, you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, became food for every beast of the field and were scattered, scattered on every high hill. Ezekiel 34, verse 15, a little further down. God says in response to this, I will shepherd my flock and I will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will search for the lost, verse 16. I will... Bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy and will feed them with judgment. I will feed them with judgment. You have to understand this. This is Matthew 25. I will feed them with judgment. The time of judgment is coming. As for you, my flock, says the Lord, behold, I will judge between one sheep and another between the rams and the male goats, when the Son of Man comes, nations will be gathered and he will separate the sheep from the goats. This is Ezekiel 34. This is this major theme that's in the entire Old Testament, but is most detailed in Ezekiel 34. Goats, what does God have against goats? There's nothing personal. Against these animals, I bet. I bet in the right context, God likes goats, um, but they have a tendency, apparently, to bully the sheep. They're bigger, maybe smarter, stronger, and they can actually harm the sheep, especially if they're a ram with a full set of horns. So those who are wicked and who abuse God's people are likened to goats and to rams and God says he's going to separate them verse 20 behold even i says the lord will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep why because you push with side and shoulder thrust us at the weak with your horns until you've scattered them abroad therefore i will deliver my flock and they will no longer be a prey i will judge between one sheep and another And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. He will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. It's beautiful. This is the background for Matthew chapter 25. He will seek justice. He will be prompt in righteousness. One more passage that you don't need to turn to. And then we'll go to Matthew 25 in closing. We've already referenced Joel, the prophecy of Joel chapter 3, that God will sit to judge the surrounding nations. But at that judgment specifically, God says, verse 21, I will avenge their blood, the blood of his servants, which I have not avenged. Think of how many countless... God-fearing, promise-trusting Jews and Christians have been slaughtered throughout the ages, which seemingly has not been avenged. God says, I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged. Indeed, Yahweh dwells in Zion. And we find that repeated you say oh, that's so Old Testament. Some people say oh, that's so Old Testament. It's so before the Gospel of Grace. Well, if you turn to Revelation chapter six, verses nine and ten, we find there that the souls of the martyrs, the spirits of the martyrs who were slaughtered during the time of tribulation, that they cry out to God for judgment and vengeance. And in Revelation chapter six, verse nine. John says he saw underneath the altar the souls of those who have been slain because of the word of God, because of the testimony which they maintained, and they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, just as they had been, would be completed also. God is going to avenge the blood of his servants. And he's going to do it in part when Christ returns at the judgment of the sheep and the goats. It's a major theme of the Bible, of the scriptures, that the nations in rebellion against God and who have oppressed God's people, that there will be a day of reckoning. And Jesus, looking into the eyes of his men who will suffer for his name's sake, tells them that what you have heard will be fulfilled. The Son of Man will come. The Son of Man will come and he will sit on his glorious throne. The nations that right now seem in opposition. Remember, the disciples were ruled over by the Romans. They're wondering when they're going to be released from that oppression. Then Those nations that are against God are going to be assembled. And not one wicked man or woman who oppressed God's people and those who professed the name of Christ the Messiah, not one of those evil, wicked men who let the servants of Christ die thirst and hunger and in prison and sick and naked, not one of them will go unjudged. This is the context of Matthew chapter 25. It's the day of reckoning. It's a glorious moment fearful moment but it is a moment of glory for Christ. In Revelation chapter 20 we learn of the last and final judgment when the souls of the wicked will be resurrected all to stand and give account for their deeds done in the body but it seems according to the teaching of Christ At the close of this period that he calls the great tribulation, then when he will come, that there will be a gathering of those on earth at that time who are alive. They will be assembled before him and a judgment will begin. And, you know, we have questions about the timing and maybe about the details. But look, you got to step back. You got to step back. You got to look in the full face of the hellish, evil, slaughter, and persecution of God fearing, Christ trusting Jews and Gentiles throughout the generations. And you have to love Jesus and worship him for his glory, that when he comes, he can handle it. He can take the entire mess of this world at the national level and international level and render justice swiftly and exactly in defense of his brethren. It's awesome. So is there teaching here about we should help those who are sick in prison? Yes, yes. But making that the main point of this text is kind of like looking at what Joseph of Arimathea did for Jesus when he died. And, and the resurrection, I mean, the burial of Christ and, and saying, well, the main teaching of this is that we should take care of our dead. when they're, it's, it's there. There's an illustration. It's not the main point. This is about the glory and the honor and the dominion of the King of kings and Lord of lords who will render to each one according to his or her deeds, which is why you want this morning to make sure that you confess your sins and that you trust in Jesus Christ and that you are one of his brethren. Because if you are not one of his brethren or you are a sister, if you will, if you are not part of his family by faith, by grace and trusting in Christ, then you will stand against him and you will not only be held accountable for your own sins against him, but you will be held accountable for your sins against his people. Oh, in closing this morning, does Jesus love his people? And in the days to come, and should the Lord tarry in this culture, young men and women, when you are looked at like you have 20 heads because you stand for basic biblical truths, when you are persecuted in your job, when you lose your promotion, when you lose your paycheck, when you seem like a loser to this society, when you are called a bigot and hateful and all kinds of different things, when you suffer as you absolutely will in the very near coming days, you remember Jesus is with you. He knows his people. You are one of his. He owns you. And on the last day, you will share the joy of those that Jesus describes in this text. You're gonna you think you're just a nobody. You're just a little Christian in your little face, and you think, you know, I haven't done anything great for Christ. And he'll identify with you. And we certainly here, lastly, are taught by our Lord not only of his glory, not only that he identifies with his people but that we ought to love his people. We risk all for his people. If it costs us, it costs us rather, to visit one of, one of his people who are in prison for account of his name, so be it. If, if it means that, that we're looked down on because we provide for the needs, we care for the persecuted. We look after, even if it costs us. And the days are coming, and they're here, brothers and sisters, it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us now but it's going to particularly cost those who are alive during the tribulation but Jesus will come he will render judgment and there will be those who go into everlasting life and those who go into eternal judgment because a king will sit in judgment on the throne in Jerusalem let's pray we love you Lord Jesus we worship you we fear you you are awesome we do pray that you would help us to be found among your people and be willing to stand for you under persecution, whether it's minor, trite, or severe. We pray for our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world for whom this morning it's very sincere, se- severe. We pray that you will help us to love one another, remembering that, that those who are your people are bought with your blood that you take very seriously how we treat your servants. Help us to love them as we love you. Help us to care for one another and to look out for those who suffer for your namesake. And help us most of all to worship you rightly as we ought. Help us to bow the knee to no man, no, no intimidation, but in our hearts to reverence you, our Lord and our God and Father. We pray it in Jesus, your name. Amen.